This is Jim Pruitt, and you listen to another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. So I farm so hard, the employees want to find me, and then want to hire me. What's 100K to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy. Working late nights, you best believe me. My grades can only go ace. Never want to see another B unless I'm Jay-Z. Farm so hard, let's get paid. Hey everyone, this is Caitlin, and I'm here with another literature review. Today we're looking at a study of the comparative effectiveness of amiodarone and lidocaine for the treatment of in-hospital cardiac arrest. A little bit of background, sudden cardiac death claims over 350,000 lives annually in the U.S., and this is roughly equally split between in-hospital cardiac arrest and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. However, current guidelines are predominantly written based on studies in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. This could pose a challenge as differences in patient populations and characteristics between out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and in-hospital cardiac arrest may influence the effectiveness of therapies. Regardless of the location of the cardiac arrest, ACLS guidelines for ventricular tachycardia and ventricular fibrillation incorporate the use of defibrillation, vasopressors, and antiarrhythmic drugs, including amiodarone and lidocaine. The current guidelines for VTAC VFib arrest recommend either amiodarone or lidocaine, with no indication of preference, and this is based on three trials in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, including the 1999 AMIO versus placebo study that led to its inclusion in the 2000 guideline update as preferred therapy over lidocaine, and the ALIVE and ROC-ALP studies, which compared both agents. As of 2018, amiodarone and lidocaine were giving equal weight as first-line recommendations for VTAC arrest. Now, this study in particular is a retrospective cohort study of adult patients receiving amiodarone or lidocaine for VFib VTAC in hospital cardiac arrest using the American Heart Association's Get With the Guidelines Resuscitation Inpatient Registry. This is a national multi-center prospective registry and quality improvement project specifically for in hospital cardiac arrest. Hospitals in this registry submit clinical information regarding the patient's medical history, hospital care, and outcomes. This study originally identified around 39,000 patients with in-hospital cardiac arrest and ended up including 14,630 with in-hospital cardiac arrest secondary to VFib VTAC, um, who received either lidocaine or amiodarone. Of note, they don't state the dosing of these agents that patients received, but it's reasonable to assume that they probably followed the standard ACLS dosing, which is amiodarone 300 milligrams, then 150 milligrams, and then amiod or and lidocaine at one to one and a half megs per kilo, followed by 0.5 to 0.75 megs per kilo. The primary outcome in this study was return of spontaneous circulation or ROSC, while secondary outcomes included 24-hour survival post-arrest, survival to hospital discharge, and favorable neurologic outcome, which they defined using cerebral performance category at hospital discharge, counting good performance or moderate disability as a good neurologic outcome. They also ran both multivariable logistic regression analysis and propensity score methods to control for many covariates, including but not limited to age, pre-existing conditions, event location, day and time of event, meaning a weekday versus weekend and daytime versus nighttime, witnessed versus non-witnessed arrest, and time to defibrillation. Now for the results. Among the uh, 14,600-ish patients with um, Viva VTAC in hospital cardiac arrest, Two-thirds of them, around 10,000 patients, received amiodarone, and one-third, around 4,500, received lidocaine. Patients who received lidocaine were more likely to be female, more likely to be white, 
had lower rates of, pre- of pre-existing conditions and were less likely to be in the ICU and more likely to have coded at night. Uh, other significant differences between the groups included the fact that patients who received amiodarone were more likely to have been on mechanical ventilation and vasopressors, which is consistent with them being more likely to have been in the ICU and had a longer time to defibrillation. The unadjusted analysis found no statistically significant difference in the primary outcome, which was ROSC, between the two treatment groups. However, they did find significance in their secondary outcomes, with lidocaine being associated with statistically significantly higher rates of 24-hour survival with an absolute risk difference of 4.3, survival to hospital discharge with a risk difference of 5.5, and favorable neurologic outcome with a risk difference of 6.3. The issue I take with some of these results, and the authors had the same kind of concerns, is that the lidocaine group was objectively healthier, had fewer comorbidities, less likely to be in the ICU, faster defibrillation. So they wanted to control for a lot of these outcomes to see um, if there actually was a difference or if some of these significance was just due to the patients being healthier at baseline. So they did go ahead and run those two statistical analyses to control for the covariates. In there. Fully adjusted models, there was a number of covariates that they found significantly correlated with lower odds of all four outcomes, so patients more likely to do worse, including age, some of the pre-existing conditions, the use of vasopressors, and the time to defibrillation. Um, once they controlled for all of their covariates, um, lidocaine did actually show significant improvement, had statistically significantly higher odds of ROSC with an adjusted odds ratio of 1.15. 24-hour survival, adjusted odds ratio 1.16, survival to discharge, um, odds ratio 1.19, and favorable neurologic outcome, adjusted odds ratio of 1.18. These results were similar when they used propensity score methods instead of the uh, regression analysis, and all four outcomes retained statistical significance, so showing that either route of analysis was valid. The takeaways. What does this study mean for us? Should we be using amiodarone or should we be using lidocaine for these VFib, VTAC in hospital cardiac arrest patients? Since the 2018 focused update, ACLS guidelines say amiodarone or lidocaine may be considered for VFib, falseless VTAC that is unresponsive to defibrillation. They cite the ALIVE and the Rock Alps trial for these recommendations to bring lidocaine back into the guidelines both of which of these studies studied out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients. Um, As we kind of alluded to in the beginning, we know that there are definitely some differences between out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients and in-hospital cardiac arrest patients. They're not the same population, and I do think we're starting to dig into that in more recent literature. You're seeing more and more studies that are looking specifically at either in-hospital cardiac arrest or out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. I personally would like to see a prospective trial on this in Uh, in-hospital cardiac arrest patients specifically in the future, um, as there are just some inherent weaknesses in a registry study, we don't have the full picture. Though I will say I did really appreciate how much data this registry has and how many things they were actually able to provide. But there's, again, there's still nothing that accounts for actually gathering that data prospectively. As for what I plan on doing, this isn't necessarily practice changing for me as I have been leaning more into lidocaine than amiodarone for a while, though I will admit it is a lot out of convenience. Um, 
I would much rather put together that pre-filled syringe than draw up the amiodarone, which at least for me, I feel like it always bubbles and it foams so easily. Those bubbles leak down, the syringe gets kind of slippery, gets hard to label. I digress. Maybe that's just a me problem, but I definitely find lidocaine a lot more convenient. Um, So once it's been given that kind of equal standing, I've tended to reach for it as a recommendation more often. Um, The dosing is a little bit trickier than amiodarone's flat dosing because that lidocaine is weight-based. But what I found is with that initial dosing of one to one and a half mg per kilo, the 100 mg pre-filled syringe that I have in my crash cart is an appropriate dose for most standard adult patients. So anyone weighing between around 65 to 100 kilos, if I give them that 100 milligrams, it's going to be in that weight range. Um, if I have a patient that's very clearly a really, really tiny old lady or someone who is significantly above that 100 kilogram threshold, I will reach for amiodarone so that I don't have to worry about putting together multiple syringes or calculating a more specific dose in the moment that might confuse the nurse who's handing who's administering medications. But majority of the patients within that group, a full syringe is an appropriate dose, and I find myself reaching for it when I can. As for me personally, the study does help me feel better about that practice. It does give me a little bit more support than guidelines say they're both equal, and I think this is easier. But if I weren't already on the lidocaine train, I'm not sure if it would convince me totally on its own, just due to the retrospective nature of it. But I'm really interested in this study, and I'm excited to see if we start seeing more differentiation between in-hospital cardiac arrest and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients in upcoming literature and guideline recommendations. Again, I thank you guys for, for listening, and I'm super excited to bring to you guys two big things that we've been working on. One of them you guys probably have a good good sense of um, our Empower RX conference will be in collaboration with SAEM 23 this year in Austin, Texas on May 16th. Um, it's going to be great. Um, I have a few more details I'll let, let you guys know about. But another thing is going to be our new PACU prep that we have built because we've looked out there and we've seen that we, we wanted to make something different, I would say, when it comes to preparing for the BCEMP board certification. And one of the things that we've notice is that we need something that's going to be a little bit more to what traditional ED pharmacists do. And that's going to be based off tests. Um, so we decided a year ago that we was going to make a question bank and we've worked really hard with some very smart people, much smarter than me to build our new, what we call PACU prep, uh, board certification prep. And right now we have it just for emergency medicine, um, but over the next two months, we're going to probably release um, BCCP and BCPS. So that's going to be something that's really big for us. So again, thank you guys again for listening to this episode. As always, guys, close it out the same way every time. Uh, you don't have to be a pharmacist. You don't have to work in an ED. But everything you do, make sure you farm so hard. Closes it. scratches his head. Whatever she's looking for, it doesn't matter. Perfect, 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 perfect.